Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. You've been watching some of the most anticipated testimony in the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. The man who performed the autopsy on George Floyd is testifying. Hennepin County Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Andrew Baker, he ruled Floyd's death a homicide when he performed the autopsy in May 2020. Though, as Dr. Baker just explained, homicide means something different to a medical examiner than it does to a prosecutor. To a medical examiner, it essentially means that the death was caused by the actions of another person. It's not an assignment of guilt or malicious intent necessarily. Dr. Baker said the primary cause of death was the restraint by law enforcement, though he said Floyd's health conditions and the drugs in his system did play a role. Let's continue to listen in. Sometimes old-fashioned sign language is best. We're going to take a 15-minute break. All right, so they are taking a 15-minute break, and while they do that, uh, let's go over what we have learned today. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Minneapolis covering the trial for us. Omar, walk us through the medical examiner's testimony today. Uh, it was very highly anticipated. Uh, what, what to you are the big headlines? Yeah, Jake, very highly anticipated because really the crux of the defense's argument comes down to what the actual cause of death is. And during cross-examination, he said in court, the chief medical examiner, I believe heart disease and drugs played a role in George Floyd's death. Now, as we went further on into testimony and prosecutors were able to do a redirect examination, question him again, he clarified saying that he believes those were contributing factors, not necessarily the actual causes. But then another point in this is comes down to the actual amount of drugs that was in George Floyd's system. We knew that there were amounts of fentanyl. We knew that there were amounts of methamphetamine. And based on past testimony, it was a low amount of methamphetamine. But for fentanyl, it was 11 nanograms per milliliter. And the reason that's significant is because a similar number came up during this where the chief medical examiner says he's seen fatal cases of overdoses when the trace amount is three nanograms per milliliter. But when you look at all other contributing factors, the chief medical examiner also said it depends on the circumstances of the person, the tolerance certainly as well, and then of course uh, how a certain body reacts to it based on pre-existing medical conditions. But part of what we've heard from the medical examiner goes a little differently from what we heard earlier in the day from a forensic pathologist and someone who used to be the assistant medical examiner for Hennepin County here. And she basically said that she ruled out drug overdose as a cause of death. And again, you notice the different words, role in death, cause of death, she ruled that out. And of course, as we continue into this, all that matters is how the jurors are, are seeing and interpreting this testimony as to what they believe is the cause of death, of course, as we get ever closer to getting in the verdict phase of this. All right, Omar Jimenez uh, in Minneapolis, thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in our, our panel. Um, uh, Jennifer, let me start with you. As uh, Omar just mentioned, the medical examiner addressed the other significant conditions as they're called. Take a listen. The other significant conditions are things that played a role in the death but didn't directly cause the death. 
So, for example, you know, Mr. Floyd's use of fentanyl did not cause the subdual or neck restraint. His heart disease did not cause the, um, the subdual or the neck restraint. But under questioning from the defense, Jennifer, the medical examiner does say that those factors did play a role. Take a listen. And so in your opinion, uh, both uh, the heart disease as well as the history of hypertension and the drug, uh, the drugs that were in his system played a role in Mr. Floyd's death? In my opinion, yes. So Jennifer, translate for us. What, What does that mean? Well, the defense scored some points today, Jake. I mean, the prosecution only has to prove that the actions of Derek Chauvin were a substantial causal factor in the death. They don't have to prove to the exclusion of everything else. But so far, the other witnesses, the other expert witnesses we heard from, have pretty much excluded those other things. They've basically ignored those other causes and said, yes, it was what Derek Chauvin did, the compression of the chest, the compression of the neck, the low oxygen, that is what caused the death without talking about or without giving any credence to the drugs and the heart condition. Whereas this doctor said, yeah, it does matter. So it's not that it's a death knell for the prosecution by any stretch, but it does give the defense a little bit of life here. Let's, let's bring in Dr. Kalisha Hill. Uh, she's an anatomical and pathology specialist. Dr. Hill, what do you make of this from a medical point of view? Yes, thank you for having me. From a medical point of view, it was clear that there was an opportunity to share the findings of the pathologist that did autopsy. It was clear that although the, the, the uh, deceased had both cardiomyopathy as well as atherosclerotic heart disease and also drugs within his system, they may be contributing factors, but they were not ruled as the cause of death. And I think that is the distinction that wanted to be clarified by everyone as we cannot attribute a medical condition that many people have walking around every day and then have that be the sole cause of death in this case. Clearly, there were other factors that were involved, but the medical examiner did not rule that the cardiac disease was his cause of death. And Van, just a reminder for all our viewers out there, all the defense has to do is create reasonable doubt in the mind of one juror. Mm-hmm. Yep. To- uh, and that could could hang this uh, whole thing up, or if that one juror is uh, obstinate enough or persuasive enough, uh, it could r- result in exoneration. But I mean, what you see of the, the defense doing, they continue to try to make the minor thing the major thing, and the major thing the minor thing. The minor thing is that he, he uh, apparently had used some drugs and wasn't healthy. Uh, that's quite minor. Nobody was screaming uh, on the street corner, hey, you know, let's give this, put this guy on a good exercise regimen. And they were screaming, you're killing him. You're crushing him. You're killing him. Please stop. And so, again, the only way that this uh, defense can prevail is if you just don't believe your lying eyes. And, and that, and so again and again, focus on the minor stuff, any little minor thing, and ignore the major thing, which is what everybody in the whole world saw. Jennifer, as a matter of law, does it matter if a victim of an act of violence, in this case I'm talking about George Floyd as the victim of what Officer Chauvin did because he put his knee on his neck and on his back for more than nine and a half minutes, does it matter if the person has drugs in his system or is out of shape or has some sort of health problem? I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that if I went outside, got into a big fight with somebody who was morbidly obese and just kept punching them in the face and then they died, 
that I would get off because the person was out of shape. I mean, help me out here. I don't understand. Well, they have to, the prosecution has to prove every element beyond a reasonable doubt, and that includes causation. They have to prove that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd. So if it was something else, if actually George Floyd had a heart attack a moment before Derek Chauvin's cutting off of his airflow killed him that way, then Derek Chauvin would not be responsible. I think what everyone's struggling with here is it's, it's so obvious that that is not what happened and the cause of death was what happened on the ground there with Derek Chauvin. But legally speaking, if they can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant's actions caused the death, then it's an acquittal. Dr. Hill, the medical examiner said he did not see any pills or pill fragments in George Floyd's stomach during the autopsy. Is that significant as the defense tries to make the case that drugs were a significant factor in his death? It may be significant in that having the pills being identified means that it had not been fully digested. But because there were no pills and the drugs were found in his bloodstream, likely he had the drugs on him for some time and in him for some time and therefore he was not still in the process of ingesting drugs before this interaction and more likely he was already in a state where he was as we saw uh, walking around and talking to people and really did not show any signs of physical or medical distress until the encounter and van today the jury uh, viewed photos from george floyd's autopsy they were not shown publicly however w- what do you make of that decision um it, it certainly could have a big impact on the jury to see graphic photos what what, what do you think you never know which way that cuts and we since we don't know what the pictures are it's hard to comment on them i do think it is a is a mercy to the family it's a mercy to that community it's a mercy to that community not to show stuff that you just don't have to show I think the, the, this uh, community, this family has been traumatized enough and re-traumatized over and over again. So I think it, it, it does, it's not going to help the public's understanding uh, very much to look at stuff like that. Also, you don't know if it uh, uh, turns off or, or, or makes a juror uh, feel more sympathetic or uh, you start to desensitize uh, uh, juries if you give them you know, c- certain types of images over and over again. So you don't know how, how this is going to play ultimately. All right, Dr. Hill, Van, Jennifer, thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. We're standing by for the trial of Derek Chauvin to resume. We're going to bring that to you. Plus, kids could be one step closer to getting the vaccine. Pfizer is now asking the FDA to allow emergency youth authorization for kids as young as 12. Stay with us. We're going to rejoin the Derek Chauvin trial as soon as it resumes. But until then, uh, let's talk about our health lead. Pfizer is currently asking the FDA to grant emergency use authorization for children ages 12 to 15. It's currently authorized for Americans 16 and up. The acting chairman of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee says it's highly likely the authorization will be approved. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. Sanjay, based on how prior authorizations went, how long do you think... Uh, if authorized, we could start seeing kids getting shots in arms, kids 12 and over. over. Well, it, it could be pretty, pretty quick, Jake. You know, you, you remember Dr. Fauci said maybe it would be the beginning of next school year. This seems to telegraph that it could come sooner than that. This is an, an amendment to the existing emergency use authorization. So uh, they may not even have to do the, the standard sort of advisory committee. The FDA could look at this data and make a ruling fairly quickly. And there's obviously a lot of interest around this. So I think that they're not going to delay this, uh, you know, make some sort of ruling one way or the other. 
So after that, in the past, it took three weeks from application and from uh, submitting the application to authorization. It should be within that time period if this is going to happen. Do we know what the studies say? I know they've been testing it on kids uh, for a few months now. Yeah, this is, so this is interesting. These are what are called bridging trials. So they're not the same size as the 40,000 sort of person trials that we heard about before. This was somewhere between two and 3,000 uh, kids that age, 12 to 15. Um, half got placebo, half got the vaccine. What they found is that there was 18 people, 18 of these kids who got sick, they were all in the placebo group. So that was their indication that the vaccine seemed to be having some benefit. They also measured the antibody levels in these kids who got the vaccine, and they found that the antibody levels were high in terms of these neutralizing antibodies that people have learned so much about. And then obviously the safety. Uh, they found that the safety was really no different than what they found for, for kids who are older, 16 plus. Uh, headache, fatigue, and pain at the injection site were the most common side effects. That's the data that's going to be submitted. We'll see if the FDA verifies it. Did you have any side effects when you got vaccinated? After the first shot, I had just a little bit of arm pain, uh, n not so significant that I couldn't throw a ball or something. After the second shot, I got it around 7.30 in the morning, and I remember that night, uh, around 7.30, 8 o'clock that night, I felt like I needed to go to bed, had a bit of a headache, low-grade fever, just tired, exhausted, went to bed. Next morning, I felt, uh, I, I, you know, felt like I had recovered. Yeah, I had the same thing. You had Pfizer. I had the same exact thing, a little soreness yep. uh, after shot one, shot two that night. I had chills, and I felt, you know, like uh, I had a cold coming on. And then the next morning, I got up. I felt great. I came to work. Everything was fine. Um, do you think this decision by the FDA is going to have any impact on getting kids back into classroom? It's not necessary, obviously, to do to have kids back in class safe, to have them all vaccinated. There's ways to do it safely. But could this expedite the process and allay some of the fears? Yeah, I think I think for that reason, Jake, as you point out, there are ways to have kids back in classroom safely without the vaccine. But, you know, you and I just were talking about yesterday, things like extracurricular activities, sports, things like that where if there is transmission within schools, that typically tends to be the source. So it may help um, getting, getting more of those types of activities around school back to some sort of sense of normalcy. Now, the, the, this uh, vaccine has never been advertised as 100% preventing everybody from anything. Um, so there are some reports of fully vaccinated people. It's a real minority, but there are reports of fully vaccinated people uh, getting COVID and some in the very high-risk groups uh, uh, dying. Um, we should underscore these are anomalies and should not deter people from getting the vaccine. They're not getting sick because of the vaccine. They're getting sick very, very small numbers despite it, right? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's right, Jake. I mean, we've looked specifically at some of these cases now, and as you point out, there's, there's, there, there are very few. Um, but what you find in, in, in some situations in a person who's very elderly, maybe even immunocompromised, the vaccine, which requires your immune system to be working well, may not be as effective in them. And that could, you know, put them at a higher risk for infection. And some folks are just very frail already to begin with. Uh, you know, the vaccine itself, 90 percent, uh, you know, protective. But that also means that 10 percent of people, you know, they're not going to get the same sort of protection from it. All right, Sanjay, thanks so much. Good to see you. Uh, Dr. Uh, Gupta, you. tomorrow night is going to have a special. Join him, CNN Special Report, The Truth About Vaccines. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern, Saturday. Coming up next in Battle Florida, Congressman Matt Gates is about to face another investigation. That and the Derek Chauvin trial about to come back uh, after recess. Stay with us.
In our politics lead today, the House Ethics Committee just announced it is launching an investigation into embattled Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates. The committee says that they're going to look into allegations of sexual misconduct, illegal drug use, sharing illicit photos of naked women on the House floor, and more presumably. The Justice Department is also looking into whether Gates had an inappropriate relationship with a minor, a 17-year-old girl, and broke federal sex trafficking and prostitution laws. CNN's Paula Reed reports. Florida Congressman Matt Gates adding two New York attorneys to his defense team, including Mark Mukasey, who has also represented the Trump Organization in the past. In a statement, a spokeswoman said the two will help Gates fight back against the unfounded allegations. Federal investigators are looking into Gates's role in an alleged prostitution ring as part of a wider probe of the congressman and his associates. Now, the Daily Beast offering new insight into the trail of money. Venmo records obtained by the site show how, in May of 2018, Gates reportedly paid friend and then Seminole County tax collector Joel Greenberg $900. The next morning, Greenberg transferred money totaling the same amount to three young women, according to the report. When Matt Gates sent them to Joel Greenberg, it said test and hit up this girl. When Joel Greenberg paid them to these girls, it said school and tuition. CNN has not confirmed the details of allegations in this story, and there's no indication the women were under 18 at the time or the payments were for anything illegal. It really is an honor to be here today. Gates's friend, Greenberg, has been indicted on 33 federal charges, including sex trafficking of a minor. He's uniquely situated. Greenberg is likely to enter a plea deal in his case, raising the possibility he could cooperate with federal investigators and put pressure on the congressman. I'm sure Matt Gates is not feeling very comfortable today. Gates has continued to deny any wrongdoing. It is a horrible allegation and it is a lie. Writing on Monday, I have never ever paid for sex. And second, I, as an adult man, have not slept with a 17-year-old. In a sign the Gates investigation may expand beyond sex trafficking, the New York Times is reporting prosecutors were told Gates discussed arranging a sham candidate in a Florida state Senate race last year with a Florida lobbyist to help his friend win the seat. Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, the first GOP member of Congress, openly calling for Gates to step down, tweeting late Thursday, Matt Gates needs to resign. Moments ago, Gates's office responded to news of that House ethics investigation, once again calling the allegations blatantly false. And tonight, Gates will make his first public appearance since these allegations surfaced. He will address a group organized by Women for America First. It's being held at former President Trump's Miami Golf Club. Jake. Interesting. Paula Reed, thank you so much, and welcome to CNN. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Finally, we're going to take uh, a moment here to remember just one of the more than 560,000 American lives we've lost to the pandemic. Luis Lopez was a devoted dad and the town of Prosser, Washington's favorite volunteer. As a volunteer firefighter, Luis responded to a staggering 1,600 emergencies and was deployed around the state during wildfire season. When Luis wasn't fighting fires, he gave tours of the fire station. He loved to dress up as Santa for the annual holiday party. He also worked as a custodian and a bus driver at the local school. The fire chief at West Benton Fire Department said Lopez was a teddy bear. He was just 42 years old. Our deepest condolences to his friends and family. May his memory 
be a blessing to his wife and his five kids. Be sure to watch CNN State of the Union this Sunday. My guests include Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Majority Whip Democratic Congressman James Clyburn, and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'll see you Sunday morning. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.